We're going to be looking at those uh, verses from Hebrews chapter three in a few moments. Now, customers are fickle. Uh, That was one of the first things that I learned when I was working in the automotive industry. The whole drive, especially behind dealerships, is to try and uh, engage customers to be loyal to a certain brand. Uh, Not just so that they come back to get their car serviced each time, but that eventually they will come back to buy another car. And unless you can achieve this brand loyalty, uh, really the whole brand and therefore the whole company is at risk. Uh, And that's the same not just in the automotive industry, but almost any company that is trying to sell something to a customer. But of course, the problem is customers are fickle. Uh, As soon as they see a better deal elsewhere, they'll be off and go for the better deal. And so you've got to make sure that your prices and that your uh, services are of the highest quality. And also, if there's a problem with what they're receiving, then that problem alone might be enough to to cause them to go elsewhere uh, and find uh, what else is on offer. Now, I want to be careful with the analogy, because coming to Jesus is not like being a customer to a certain brand. He is not a customer that we come to, to to buy services from. He is a king who calls us to himself. And yet there are similarities because as we follow Jesus, there are all sorts of other brands, as it were, that are tempting us away from him, trying to cause us to be distracted, leading us away from Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian yet, perhaps you've felt this tension already. You're watching these services, you're listening to the Bible, uh, you're trying to find out who Jesus is with the aim of weighing up. Is it really worth following Jesus? Is it worth the claims that he makes on my life? And if you are a Christian, I expect you've felt some of this tension, if not in the immediate past few weeks, at least at some stage in your Christian life. The question of whether it's worth continuing to follow Jesus, even when it means uh, giving up certain things that we love, even when it means obeying him in a way that is perhaps particularly difficult, even when it means putting myself second in order that I can put Jesus and his church first. Is it worth following Jesus? I wonder how Jesus would answer if you were able to ask him that question. Well, I won't leave you pondering that for too long, because actually he has given us an answer in his word. And in Hebrews chapter three, what we have is part of a sermon written to a group of Christians who were asking basically this very question. Is it worth following Jesus? They were being tempted to turn away from Jesus in order to go back to Old Testament Judaism. to to their Jewish roots, to the system of sacrifices, to obedience to the law, to the food laws and and the whole um, cultural package that surrounded the Judaism that they had been saved from. And the reason they were tempted to go back there is likely because they were facing persecution. The other Jews in their city, in their community, in their families even, would have made it difficult for them as Christians. They would have pushed them out. They would have uh, insulted them. They would have made relationships difficult in their families. They would have made business difficult in their towns. And so this pressure, this persecution would have been causing them to ask, is it really worth carrying on following Jesus? Wouldn't I be better off going back to the Judaism that I've come from? 
And in the chapter that we've read, the author's message really is quite simple. He wants to tell them, do not abandon the faith. Do not abandon the faith. That's basically what he's saying. And I expect you probably picked up that sense as we read through even just that first time. You see it, for example, in the implicit challenge in verse six. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and our hope. He's saying, look, you've got a, a responsibility to hold on, to keep going. Don't give up the faith. He uh, picks up the quotation in verse seven. Uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is an instruction given to the believers not to harden their hearts, not to abandon their faith. And that challenge from verse six is repeated again in verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. The author's message is trying to get these Christians not to abandon their faith, but to hold on to what they believe right to the very end. To not give up that heavenly calling that they've been given in verse one. But the question, of course, still is, is it worth it? Is it worth holding on to the faith? Is it worth persevering? And as you look through the chapter, you see that what the author is doing is he's not just giving them this instruction, do not abandon the faith. He's also surrounding that with a package of reasons of why Jesus is worth it. So he starts by saying, look, don't abandon Jesus because there's no one else more worthy than him. In verse two to six, the author makes a comparison between Moses on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Now, this is vitally important because for those Christians, Moses was the the key to the Old Testament Judaism that they'd come from. Moses was the one through whom God had spoken to give his law. Moses was the one through whom God had rescued Israel out of slavery from Egypt to form them as a nation. Moses was the one who through whom God had established all the the sacrificial system that the Jews obeyed. And uh, the author is quick to affirm, actually, that Moses was faithful in this role. Yes, Moses was faithful. Moses was a man of God. Moses is to be looked up to. But here's the comparison. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as a son. Moses was faithful as a servant in the house of God. He was part of the house of God. But when Jesus comes, we have the son of God now who is over the house, who has authority over the house. And he is faithful in his role over all that God has given him. And so, you see, if you're comparing Moses and Jesus, what you quickly come to realize then is actually these these are not side by side comparisons. Moses was faithful as a servant under Jesus, who is the one over the house. So actually, if you're thinking about honoring Moses, the right thing to do is not to focus your, your mind on Moses, but actually to focus your thoughts on Jesus, the one who Moses served. Don't abandon Jesus then for the sake of Moses, because that would be going backwards. Uh, Continue in your faith and your your devotion to Jesus. 
In the second part of the chapter, verse 7 onwards, the author moves on to give an illustration from Israel's history. And in verse 7 to 11, he quotes from a psalm which details a specific event in Israel's history. What happened was when Israel had been rescued from Egypt as slaves, God led them out with the help of Moses, who was leading them, led them out through the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness to the, to the Mount Sinai, where he gave them his law. And then he led them to the promised land, the land that God had promised to give to Israel. And as they camped on the border of that land, thinking about how and when they might go in and take possession of it, they listened to the reports of the spies that they'd sent. And Israel decided, look, these people are just too big. Their cities are too strong. We are too weak. There's just no way we can capture this land. We'd be better off going back. We'd be better off going back to Egypt. We'd be better off even as the slaves that we were just a few months ago, rather than trying to take hold of this land that God is saying he's promising to give us. It's too dangerous. There's no hope. The Israelites rebelled against God in this way. That's what the uh, the quotation in verse 7 to 11 is referring to. And in verse 12, the author says, see to it that none of you makes this same mistake. Now, that's interesting because the Christians in the first century uh, that this letter is written to were not standing on the edge of the promised land, wondering whether they might be able to go in and take possession of it. But they are on the verge of receiving what God has promised them. They are on the verge of receiving their heavenly calling. And they do stand, as it were, at the border, at the edge of receiving that promise. And all they're able to see is the difficulties and the damage and the hurt that may lay ahead of them. And they're asking, is it worth it? Is it even possible? Is it worth sticking with Jesus through this difficult path ahead? And the author says, don't make the same mistake that Israel did. He urges them, do not make the same mistake. Don't have these sinful, unbelieving hearts. Don't, as it were, go back to the slavery that you've been freed from. Jesus is able to lead you through. Just like God was able to lead Israel into the promised land, if only they had trusted him. Jesus is able to lead you into his promise that he's given you. If only you will trust him and stick with him. And then he ends the chapter uh, with a, a stark warning about what the results were for those who did turn back. They fell under God's judgment. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter my rest? if not to those who disobeyed. And then in the last verse of the chapter, in the first verse of chapter four, uh, the author makes the point that these Christians are at that same critical juncture. And the, the choice is just as stark as it was for the Israelites. Either obey and enter the promise or rebel and suffer God's judgment. 
There's no middle ground. There's no option for these Jewish Christians to think, oh, I'll go back to Judaism in the hopes that I could still be counted as one of God's people. Perhaps there's still some safety for me there. And the authors say, no, either you stick with him and obey and and receive the promise or else you turn back to the judgment of God. Is it worth following Jesus? The author wants to show them, look, there's there's no one else more worthwhile following than Jesus. And not only is Jesus the only way to be saved from the judgment, but also he's the only one who is able to lead you through the difficulties to get you to the promise that he's given you. So for these Hebrew Christians, pressurized, persecuted for their faith. Asking, is it really worth following Jesus? The author's telling them, do not abandon their faith. Do not abandon. Jesus is the only one worth following. Now, that's hopefully a summary of what the chapter is about and and how it relates to those first Christians who received its message. But the question is, how does this chapter then apply to us? Because we are not tempted to go back to Old Testament Judaism. But we might be following some of the same patterns uh, that the Hebrew Christians were. Uh, We might be stuck in some of the same traps that they were finding themselves in. Think about this, for example. We might be distracted in our obedience to Jesus, just like these Christians were. Consider, was it right or was it wrong for them to revere and respect Moses? Was it right or wrong for them to have a high view of the law of God? Of course, it was the right thing to do. This is the word of God. And they were respecting the law that God had given. In fact, much of the New Testament urges us to to do the same things that the law commands us to do. So it was right for the Christians to have this high view of Moses and this high view of the law. But what they're in danger of doing is making the law the the primary thing. You've got to have some respect for the law. In fact, you can't be following Jesus unless you have a respect for the law. But the law is given in service of Jesus. And what what these Christians are in danger of doing is swapping them two things around so that the law becomes the primary thing. Well, now, if you've made the law primary, if you've made Moses number one, Jesus quite quickly becomes surplus. I don't really need him. I don't really need to be following him. And so he drops out the picture. They abandon the faith. Look at how that same pattern can happen so easily in our own lives. Let's take, for the sake of example, our love and care for our families. You might have children or grandchildren. Is it right or is it wrong for you to desire to 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 provide the best for your children or grandchildren, to make them happy, uh, to make their their lives enjoyable? Of course, it's a right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. And if we're following Jesus, it's a necessary thing to do, to love the families that God has given given us, to care for them and to, to cherish them. But there is a risk that we become so distracted by them that these secondary things that God has given us, we make them primary. 
And once our children become primary, then Jesus can quite quickly become surplus and secondary. Is it worth the hassle of trying to get all my kids out to church when we start meeting together? Uh, Things were so easy when we can just have it in the living room, when I can watch online once they've all gone to bed. Is it really worth persevering at trying to set up family devotions so that I can teach my children about the word of God? Because they just wriggle and complain and get annoyed when I try and do it. Is it really worth continuing to obey Jesus when when that obedience to Jesus causes so much distraction and difficulty in this secondary area? My love for children. And the author's message would be, don't give up. Keep persevering. It is worth persevering. In fact, he's the only one worth honouring as primary. Not your children. They're not going to lead you into the promised land. They're not going to save you from the judgment of God. Jesus is the only one worth honouring and persevering in faith for. And you might think how that same pattern can be applied in other areas of life. Perhaps in, in your career. That can so easily become primary and and push our devotion to Christ as secondary. In our ministries, for example, if you find that you are neglecting certain other areas of responsibility, if you find that you are being disobedient to Jesus in order to protect and preserve your particular ministry within the church, then what you're realising is that your ministry has become primary. You've abandoned the faith in order to exalt something else. You've been distracted. If you're getting distracted by things, what you need to see from this chapter is Jesus is far greater than those things that are distracting you. Now, here's a second application. Let's now turn to to think about that quotation in verse 7 to 11. How might you fit into that illustration there? Uh, The Israelites standing at the border of the promised land, Considering the way ahead to be just so difficult, to be so discouraged by what they see, that they are willing to turn back. There are all sorts of discouragements in the Christian life that can that can cause setbacks, uh, health loss, uh, bereavement, uh, job losses uh, and so on. But there are some discouragements that come specifically because of our devotion to Christ. Uh, discouragements like being rejected or ridiculed at school or college. Uh, discouragements like being treated differently on your sports team or, or in your art club or, or whatever it is you meet other people. The discouragement uh, that might come from the divisions in your family that have arisen as a result of your faith. And these discouragements can cause us to ask, is it is it really worth persevering? Is it worth walking this road of loneliness, of loss, of ridicule, of mockery? Is it worth entering into these battles day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out for the sake of Jesus? Is he worth it? Or should I relegate my faith to just a private thing, just something I do on Sundays or just something for me and my close family? Now, I don't want to underestimate the the pressure and the difficulty that it is when you do face that rejection from your peers, be it at your school or college or or on your sports team or wherever. Just like the Bible doesn't um, 
underestimate the difficulty that it was for Israel to take hold of the promised land. It was a battle that they had to enter into. But is that battle so hard that it's worth giving up your faith in Christ for? The author uh, wants to constantly bring our, bring our attention back to the end. Verse 14, for example, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. What will matter at the end? What will matter when Christ returns to take his people to the promised rest? Will it matter then that you were accepted by your peers? Will it matter then that you were not ridiculed and mocked on your sports team? Or will the only thing that matter be being welcomed in to that promised rest, be receiving that heavenly calling that Jesus has promised you? If you're discouraged by the battles that you still face on your Christian journey, be encouraged by the reminder that Jesus is coming again. And let the promise that he has made you in that heavenly calling be the thing that urges you on. He is able to lead you there if you're willing to stick with him. One final application that's relevant to us all. Why was it that the Israelites were so discouraged by the anticipation of those battles? Why was it that they weren't willing to go and fight for for the land that God had promised them? After all, they'd seen how God had rescued them on the night of the Passover. They'd seen God uh, walk them through the Red Sea. They'd seen the might and the power and the awesomeness of God at Sinai. So why was it when they camped at the border of the promised land, they were unwilling to enter the battle, to go in? Verse eight calls it hardness of hearts. Verse 10 describes it as their heart going astray. And verse 12 applies the same situation to a warning against sinful unbelief. I think fundamentally what was going on with the Israelites was they failed to believe. They failed to believe that God really was among them. They failed to believe that God really was directing them by his word. They failed to believe that God was present among them to fight the battles. They failed to believe that God was with them. Now, for some, that position of distrust might be the position that you already find yourself in. You might be wondering just how it is that you can possibly regain the confidence you once had in Christ. All this talk of promises of heaven, all this talk of the importance of meeting with others, all this talk of the the joy of knowing a faithful God just seems so distant to you. How can you regain that confidence, you wonder? And for all of us, actually, not just those who are in that situation, for all of us, the author is warning us against falling into such a a position. Protect yourselves from falling into it. Even if you're not there already, take active steps to protect yourself. How do we do that? Well, a huge part of it is achieved through the community of believers. Verse 13, encourage one another daily. That's the way you protect against this sinful, unbelieving heart. Encourage one another. Look out for those whose faith is being challenged. Look out for those who face the discouragements, who can see them coming on the path ahead. 
Look out for those who are in danger of being distracted by other things and encourage them. Perhaps you are one that needs that encouragement urgently. Well, this chapter is reminding us it's in the church that we are most likely to find that encouragement. In the church, as people open God's word with us and remind us of the truths therein and model the truths in the way that we live and act and speak. But for each of us, it's a reminder of our obligation to be part of the community of believers. And a reminder that when we come together to worship on a Sunday, it's not just for my own sake that I might be built up. But it's an opportunity for me also to encourage others. How are we to encourage others? What is the content of that encouragement? Well, you might look, for example, to the same way that Joshua and Caleb, the spies who were encouraging Israel to go into the land. How were they trying to encourage Israel? They were telling them, God is with us. He's led us all this way. Why will he not give us the things he's promised? God is with us. Won't you believe that? Or you might do it the same way. It really is the same way as the author in this chapter does. Verse 14, he says, we have come to share in Christ. If we if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at the beginning. Christ is with us. We share in him. We are united to him. If you've been discouraged, if you're distrustful in your faith in Jesus Christ, perhaps one of the things that you need to be reminded of is that you're not just following a certain set of doctrines. You've not just got a systematic worldview that you're trying to cling to. You're clinging to a person. You share in Christ. At least you will do if you hold fast to that confidence till the end. It's not a it's not a new truth. It's not a new statement. It's not a new explanation that you need. It's not a convincing argument. It's a reminder of the person that you follow. It's a reminder of the one who gave his life for your life. It's a reminder that he is with us, encouraging us, urging us on. That he is the priest who builds up this house, who is faithful to us, even during those times that we are unfaithful to him. We need to be shown that Christ is present among us, directing us by his word, encouraging and equipping us by his grace. So I would urge you in the same way that the author of this letter urges these first Christians, do not abandon the faith. Keep going. Is Jesus worth it? Well, there's no one else who's more worth it. Not only is he the only way to be saved from the judgment, but he is the only one who is able to lead you through the difficulties that you might face on the path to eternal life. Do not abandon the faith. Fix your eyes on him, the faithful one.